So there's a lot of options open to fantasy adventurers that we wouldn't really have in the real world. Um, they have the ability to go under the water, you know, swim in, in the ocean into the very depths or ascend into the skies. But there's not a lot of rules in the books that really cover that. That's true. It's kind of a problem. So since there's a lot of options for players, but for DMs, it's a lot of making things up as you go. I was thinking we could talk about that for a little bit and maybe help people give people some ideas just so that they're not uh, stuck with coming up with it on their own on the fly. Yeah, sounds good. We can do that. All right. So let's talk uh, altered environments. All right. Hello and welcome to Game Master Studio, where we'll be talking tabletop role-playing games, tips and tricks that you can use to help bring your game at home up to the next level. My name is Jerry, a.k.a. Frieden. And I'm Jared, a.k.a. DMF. And today we're going to be talking underwater and aerial adventures. There's a lot of alternate environments that your players can get into, which may cause them some problems because of things like not being able to breathe or not having ground to stand on. And... There's not a lot of options available with hard and fast details about how to handle these situations when they come up. Now, part of being a good GM is being able to figure out situations on the fly, make consistent rulings, and keep the game moving along and keeping it fun for everybody. Um, but we wanted to help give some guidelines and just talking about some possibilities just so that you're not making everything up on the fly and you actually have this at the front of your head if it's something that you're looking to move your players into in the course of your campaign. Um, we wanted to start by talking a little bit about some of the story hooks, mm -hmm. you know, where you might wind up taking your players to take them into an underwater or an aerial type adventure. Yep. Um, underwater adventures easy to set up plot hooks for. You've got sunken treasures, you've got underwater kingdoms, you've got caverns that need to be explored, shipwrecks, you've got all sorts of stuff that can be happening under the sea that, for whatever reason, somebody from above the waves needs to go down and deal with. Yep. Um, aerial adventures are a little bit harder, but you had some good ideas on what type of plot hooks might bring players into a situation where they have to do an adventure or an encounter in midair. Yeah, the first thing that came to my mind was kind of like the flying castle kind of concept or like, you know, maybe you have like hovering islands, kind of like an avatar kind of thing going on. Um, dragons is always a good one. Uh, silver dragons like to hang out in clouds specifically. Or you can just have some aerial combat going on with, you know, a bunch of, you know, dragons and or mounted uh, riders, you know, griffins, hippogriffs, pegasus. You know, there's a lot of different flying creatures that you could be riding on. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of different options for why there might be aerial combat or why you might be having to be able to fly to adventure. And of course, a lot of the players may have abilities to let them fly under their own power. Uh, wind walk and fly are spells that can impart that as well as some of the classes have flight abilities as well. Yep. Because this can also be part of a mixed situation where you have some players flying, some not, or some players underwater and some people above. So keep in mind that it doesn't need to be everybody in the party. It might just be one or two people. Right. Now, when it comes to, to adventuring, to actually being down in the, uh, in the oceans or up in the sky, there's a few things that you want to be thinking about, just not for getting into the encounters and combat side of it yet, but just for every day in there moving around. Mm -hmm. uh, we kind of broke it down into a two-sided, uh, there's two different ways of looking at it. You can go with the realistic look 
or what we call the cartoon version. Right. Yep. Um, you want to chew your bone right now? Yes, I do. No bone. Not right now. Jesus. So if we're looking at the cartoon version, as it were, we're looking at something that's simplified. Um, characters walking on the ocean floor are not going to be kicking up tons of silt. Right. You don't have uh, maybe piercing weapons are fine, but bludgeoning weapons are slowed because they're trying to swing them through the water. Uh, and also in terms of, of the aerial combats in the cartoon version, you don't have to worry about the air thinning out or the altitude causing cold effects that are going to adversely affect your characters. Right. Yeah. Um, but then in the realistic view, those come back into play. Yeah. Yeah. In your realistic view, you got to worry about, I mean, this is where the DM wants to challenge the players a little bit more. Or just in general, like so, you know, more of the hyper realistic or hyper realistic kind of game, where again, like you said, you know, like you're going to be having vision issues if you're kicking up a bunch of silt and uh, you know dirt, you know, and the walking on the the ocean floor, you're going to have to worry about you know the fact that at very high altitudes the temperature starts dropping drastically. You can actually like freeze to death up there. Uh, there's no oxygen to breathe, you know, or you know, there's no breathable air. The higher you get. And there's no breathe high altitude spell like there is a breathe water spell, uh, at least in you know D Dungeons and Dragons. Not to say that you can't you know have some sort of magic item that's going to work, you know a bottle of air you know that could kind of you know cover your bases. Just, but it, just have your players occasionally just taking hits off the bottle of air. <laughs> yeah, you know I put a bunch of air in this bag, uh, so. I mean, there's there's different ways you can get around it, but again, it's something that you're you're forcing your players to have to deal with if you're going for that realistic or hyper realistic kind of uh, game. And actually, for for underwater vision, not just silt, but light filters out pretty quickly too. Right? Yeah, it's gonna be very dark down. Yeah, there. if if and you may have issues with dark vision, low light vision. Maybe don't as a DM, you might say they don't work the same. Mm -hmm. So um, there's some options there. You know, the players do have to learn to. To really deal with that environment. Like you said, there's a water breathing spell, but not a high altitude breathing spell. Um, your players are going to have to be prepared for the possibility of it in an aerial battle of falling. Yes. Um, and they also may, in an underwater battle, all of a sudden dispel magic becomes very dangerous because now you've eliminated a character's ability to breathe. Right. Yeah. Um, which is actually bringing us into a lot of what we really kind of were talking about in the pre-show, which is how combat effects work. Right, yeah, I think that's going to be one of your, your biggest uh, factors or biggest uh, things that, uh, or topics or issues or uh, ideas that you need to spend some time thinking about before you run an underwater or aerial type adventure is going to be like your combat, or not your combat system per se, but like how you're going to approach combat. Are you going to deal with, you know, combat, the fact that it's a 360-degree environment? What rules change and yeah. what things you need to be just aware and cognizant of of a DM in order to run combat in these type of environments. Right, exactly. Uh, again, like Jerry said, you know, it might be one of those situations, like, during combat where, like, some are on the ground and some are flying around you, so it's more of, like, a 180 environment where you have, like, a horizon line, but there's so, people, you know, around you. So we actually went over this in kind of depth in the pre-show, um, 
which we were kind of talking about the 360 environment and how that works to the point where we're throwing the term around pretty casually. Yeah. Um, so why don't you let our listeners know, like when we talk about the 360 environment, here's what we mean. I mean, the, the concept that, you know, in an underwater adventure or, you know, in an aerial combat or, or whatever the situation is, you can have someone that is here, but you can also have someone here, 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 here. So you have, you know, someone that could be, you know, stationary as if they were like just, you know, treading water, you know, 20 feet under the the surface of the ocean or underneath the water line, the sea level, as it were. And someone could be in any spot, not only straight, you know, around them on a horizontal plane, but also a vertical plane. They could be, you know, 20 feet up and 30 feet to the right of you. They could be, you know, 15 feet behind you and 50 feet below you. You have a full 360 degree uh, combat area, you know, like it's a fully, you know, realized, you know, environment. We're adding a significant Z axis to the existing X and Y axis that you have for a, a combat on dry land. Right, yeah. And while some of people might have dealt with this a little bit with having flying creatures in their combat systems, you have, like, that again, that horizon line and, like, someone's flying above you. You know, you have that, that horizon that, that's setting a, a zero level. But, again, underwater or if you're having your combat take place, like, 5,000 feet above ground, then you are going to have, you know, a negative factor. You're not going to just be able to, like, oh, a zero is the earth or the ground. You're going to be able to go below that. So, like, you know, say, okay, I'm going to use this PC as the the baseline of zero. Other PCs could be at negative 10 feet, uh, you know, while other PCs could be at plus 30 feet from that PC. Just in the, the depth, the Z-axis. So you have to worry about, I think one of the first things you have to figure out is, like, how you're going to denote that or manage that, keep track of that. Um, along those lines, you also have to keep, you know, start making decisions which preferably ahead of time you'll be making these decisions of how you're going to you know measurement will affect like are you going to go for kind of the lame i'm going to measure the distance across and then the distance up you know kind of measure your your z your x or your y and then your z or you're just going to go for like let's start doing a little bit of math and measure the actual diagonal from point a to point b into the straight line factor which is kind of what you should sort of do Pythagorean theorem yeah but yeah you start pulling out some mathematical formulas exactly so since dnd wasn't originally designed with pythagorean formula in mind some people will resort to like okay well i you know i did a and i did b but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna worry about c well i know i know that there have been suggested um some of in some of the past uh versions of dungeons and dragons where it's along the lines of you can adjust your altitude by like five feet for every 10 feet you travel horizontally or or 10 feet vertically for every 10 feet you travel horizontally or or so on and so forth so you can make it where they're just moving about horizontally but then adjusting their altitude up and down as they go right which is a possibility mm-hmm. um, you also need to take into consideration getting within striking range of an enemy. Right. You, know, you may be right on top of them, but you're 15 feet up and only have a five-foot reach. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing these flyby attacks, you need to make sure that you line up the altitude and everything so that you're close enough to be able to attack. Yeah, and if you're going for the kind of hyper-realistic kind of game, too, like you might be within a five-foot square of somebody, but you're actually over them, and that kind of means that you're swinging below your feet. So, right. I mean, like... Are you really within five feet of them? Because there's a little bit of a difference between swinging in front of you and swinging below your feet. 
I think as a DM, my initial response is if I'm running 5th edition, that's where I bring advantage and disadvantage into play. Yeah. If you're attacking an enemy who's within 5 feet, but it's 5 feet below you, you may have disadvantage because you're making a very awkward swing. Mm -hmm. Where if you're attacking an enemy who's above you, you may actually have advantage because they're going to have a difficult time reacting and defending to something that's coming from, especially in a mounted combat, the far side of their mount. Right, yeah, exactly. So that's just one of those uh, situations that you're going to want to put a little bit of thought into ahead of time, how you're going to want to approach this gonna, those uh, those issues that could arise. Right, and theater of the mind can make this very difficult. Um, if you're using a lot of virtual tabletops like D20 Pro and uh, Roll20 have built-in altitude notations that mm -hmm. you can use. Um, and with miniatures, the most common use I've seen for that is either they'll note the altitude on a little card that's placed next to the miniature, or they'll stack D6s, with yep. each D6 being a, a five an increment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or yeah, not necessarily five feet. I've seen other people use clear dice case, the clear little dice cubes uh, to denote height. You know what I mean? Like, that's just kind of a, this is person's flying compared to the other people that aren't flying. Yeah. But yeah, if you are going to worry about you know making actual uh, markers, then yeah, the dice is definitely a good one. Or some other sort of, like, if you have a bunch of building blocks of some sort, you know, that would work. If this is going to be a, a, a recurring theme for your game and you use miniatures, you might want to invest in something that will be sturdy. We're, we're going to pull in Legos. If it works. <laughs> I've, on a side note, I've considered trying to do games where instead of running with miniatures, we just use Lego figurines. That could work, yeah. Just because it be easy to build environments and you have some modular ability there. Yeah, yeah, you can build up whatever you want. All right. Uh, back to the topic, though. Um, this some other considerations while we're talking about movement. Um, not only do you have to take into account movement speeds, uh, but you have to take into account maneuverability. There are only certain classes of, of creature and fifth edition that can hover. Right. Um, in th 3.5, they had different movement categories. Um, so you may have creatures that can move faster, slower, or have a bit more maneuverability that you do need to take into account. Right, yeah, I mean, again, like in 3.5, it'd be like, you know, you had maneuverability A, B, C, or whatever, which meant, like, you know, you could stop and turn on a dime, or you had to take, like, a slow arcing turn. Um, again, but in 5th edition, I don't really, I haven't really seen any of that. It's just whether they have, they have a fly speed, and then they either have the denotation of hover in parentheses after their fly speed, or they don't. And, of course, hovering in, in a flight, you know, uh, uh, flying combat is going to be a huge advantage. Right. With all these other ones that have to keep moving or fall, then, you know, just being able to stop and figure out where everything is makes for a big advantage. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a huge difference. Like, yeah, I mean, in 5th edition, it's going to be one of those, like, say I have a 45-foot movement speed. It doesn't mean I have to take the whole 45-foot movement speed, but I do need to be continuously moving. So I can't just stay in this one spot and keep swinging i have to you know make some movement swing make some more movement you know or move and attack and then end my turn you also might want to decide you know again if you're going for more of a realistic kind of a uh, feel uh if how much movement has to be made in order to maintain flight so like say i'm a red dragon and i have a movement uh, or flight speed of 90 feet around how slow can i go and still maintain my flight before i start just falling out of the sky 
as just a quick off the cuff, I mean, I know it's kind of a rhetorical question, but I would guess that I would think as a DM, I'd rule that you'd have to move at least half speed. Yeah, I was going to say either half or a third. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, dragons don't list the hover option in the, uh, the monster manual, but as DM discretion, you can say, well, they can just flap their, their wings and hover and maintain, yeah. you know, you know, their altitude in place so they don't have to move but other creatures might have to like i would say you know like a griffin has to maintain you know some forward movement you know in order to maintain flight or they're going to start falling into the sky and actually looking through the monster manual in during the pre-show i think the only creature we were able to find that had a hover was the air elemental the air elemental yeah i'm sure there was a couple others but that was the only one we quickly glanced We, we, we looked at a lot of like the early just once that we come up with off the top of our head, we looked at the dragon, we pulled up ghost because we figured that would have a hover, which it didn't. Uh, Jin, the G- the air genies, did mm-hmm. not have a hover. Yeah. Um, the air elemental, however, did. Just We were just looking to find something that did so we could prove that it existed yeah. to ourselves. And again, DM discretion, I would absolutely say that a ghost can just hover in place. Because as far as I'm concerning, they're not even really so much flying so much as they're just existing, even mm-hmm. though they have a fly speed. So... That's one of those situations where you might overrule or say, you know what, they don't have to move at all. They can just be where they need to be. Right. And now for underwater, hovering is essentially treading water. Right, yeah. Which because then, even though you still have that 360 environment, it doesn't become as big a factor because you have you don't you don't have to worry about being able to stay in place as much when you're underwater. Uh, underwater also removes the danger of falling which is just should be something in consideration in, in an aerial game. You know, if a character falls, what happens? Mm-hmm. Because there are, if you're, if you're at, you know, 6,000 feet and you fall, that may be just time to roll a new character. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how you're flying while you're falling. I mean, you might want to give them time to try to recover. You know, if it's one of those, like... I, instead of using, like, a fly spell, I drank a potion that gave me wings, and now I'm flying around, or I have wings, or I'm on, a, you know, a mount of some sort, you know, and those wings are entangled, maybe I have a couple rounds to try to unentangle those wings and recover myself, you know, make a few dex checks or something like that, you know, some sort of situation where you have time, because, again, 60,000 feet's a long time to fall, you know, you got a few minutes to try to, you know, recover yourself, but... Then again, if you're going for the hyper-realism, you're like, oh, I'm starting to get woozy, and so far, so fast, you know. Hey, you're tumbling in free fall, the exactly. wind's rushing past yeah. your face, you can't see what's going on, and there's no point of reference because you're just tumbling end over end. You yeah. might be having to make dex checks with disadvantage or something like that. Again, the complete DM discretion there, but, you know, there could be some options. But if it is, like, I was paralyzed mid-flight, I rely on wings to, to, to fly, and I don't have any way of breaking this paralysis while I'm paralyzed and free-falling... New character. I mean, unless someone else is going to dive and save you. Which is a nicely dramatic moment, anyway. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, if you're going to have another fellow PC or NPC or somebody dive and try to recover you and save you at the last second, that could be, you know, a hold-your-breath kind of moment in the game. Yeah. You know, making them, you know, have them making checks so you don't even know, like, are they going to save me? I don't know what's going to happen. Hopefully they roll well. We'll see what happens. Uh, But important thing for the underwater note, um, in the pre-show, I instantly went to the assumption that, well, anyone can tread water, but depending on what the combat is, you like, sharks? Sharks have to keep moving. So, like, there are going to be creatures that are going to have to maintain their movement, right. like some aerial combat, you know, creatures will. But, I mean, 
typical your humanoids are going to be able to just tread water. Although you could also be having an encounter in a, in a river or a, a, a rushing river that's there. If you're treading water, the water is moving you along. Yeah. Absolutely. So everybody is constantly moving downstream at a given speed. Mm-hmm. And then you may have, you know, it may be that relative to the other players, you may not be moving so much, but there might be like a waterfall or a grate or something that you're coming up on that you need to resolve what's going on now before you hit that obstacle. Yeah. Or you have to maneuver around large rocks and like a, a, a whitewater rapid kind of, you know, situation. Like, you know, it might be deep enough that you're technically submerged, but there's still large rocks that you have to kind of zig and zag around. Right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's some good points. Don't break it for the, yeah. Okay. Now, another big factor to keep in mind is you've got spells. Yes. We talked a lot about this in the pre-show. Mm-hmm. Um, partly brought up because the second edition campaign source book talked about underwater spells. And I remember reading that as as a young GM and loving some of the ideas in there of specifically speaking underwater spells behaving differently. Yeah, I really got into the, some of the concepts in the pre-show of like how different... Um spell types or element types or damage types of spells could be affected in underwater. And even we came up with a few ideas for Ariel as well. Right. Um, um, so starting with some of the underwater, the first one was that we came up with was that we were talking about was electricity. Yep. Um, lightning damage. We figured that that would probably, because of the way that electricity is reacting with water, everything is going to become an area effect from the point of origin. Mm-hmm. It's just going to spread out indiscriminately. But that could also be really useful if a canny player is using that to their advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're surrounded by Kuatoa, they could use a single shock and grasp spell and hurt themselves because they're the point of origin, but it might also hit everything around them. Right. And now all of a sudden, a nine on one situation, they just got zapped. Mm-hmm. You know, nine of them with a single cantrip. Yeah, I definitely love the idea of electricity, like, you know, even like a bolt of lightning, you know, the, you know, using the lightning spell, typically just a straight line, but actually instead of it just being a straight line, it's basically covering like the equivalent of like a 10 or a 15 foot, uh, like, uh, cylinder, you know what I mean? Like electricity wise, you know, as it's zapping out towards its, uh, its intended target. Like, okay, well, normally it would be a straight line and it would just hit everything that's within this, you know, five-foot line. But you say it has a five, you know, where it radiates it out and, you know, damage in a five-foot on either side of it, or actually technically in a cylinder, because, you know, we're talking, like, again, a 360 environment, so anything five feet above it, anything five feet to the side of it, five feet below it, even diagonally five feet, you know, up and to the right of it, you could say, you know, all that stuff is just hit as if it was, like, you know, just like a running cube. Um or a very long rectangular cube, three-dimensional object, whatever those things. Um, so, yeah, like, a, I just think that would be awesome. It'd be a lot of fun. The idea that it could hurt the caster also, but you, so then they have to start, like, it's going to hit a lot of people, but it can hurt me too, so you start weighing the pros and cons. Yeah, I almost would think that that lightning bolt, you pick the point of origin, and it dissipates all the energy from there. It doesn't go out in a line, because it's as soon as it is generated and where it would normally be jumping off in the line... It immediately discharges in the water around it, making a lightning bolt behave more like a fireball. Yeah, I mean, that can definitely work, too. I mean, again, DM discretion is going to be on all this stuff, so, I mean, you can have a lot of fun with it. 
Uh, so yeah, a lot of options for electricity, you know, basically turning everything that would just be a point of origin into a small AOE or even a larger AOE. Uh, the next thing we talked about was, was like fire, fire. Yeah. because you know, lightning, if lightning bolts, a fireball, well, what's a fireball become? Yeah. So we had a few different ideas on how you could kind of approach this. Um, we, the first thing that we brought up was the fireball itself. Cause we right. just mentioned using the lightning bolt as a fireball. Very, yeah, the light, the fireball is kind of an iconic spell that's used, um, with different options being maybe it becomes, uh, now force damage as it causes a pressure wave. Yep. Uh, it could still be fire damage, but instead it's because it's flash boiling everything in its area of effect. Right, and yeah. so it's more steam and heat rather than direct fire. So it's not going to light anything on fire, but still do damage as if it were being burned. Yeah, I basically saw, I mean, after having our, our back and forth conversation, I kind of saw like three different options in my head of how you could do it. Uh, one being, again, like flash boiling everything or, you know, like so they're taking, you know, burning damage you know, you know, or steam damage or however you want to look at it, but say the equivalent of, you know, fire damage still. Um, the You just mentioned like the, the force damage or just straight up bludgeoning damage where, again, it's like, you know, it's an explosion, so it still has like a concussive force. So you can do that is either force damage or like bludgeoning damage. Depends on what you want to do. But again, in fireball spells, one of those like it doesn't. Sh- that's it's more like at point you know at set point of origin it just explodes. So it's not like it's going to be like this little fireball that slowly dissipates before it gets to where it's going because it's going through the water. It just kind of detonates. Burning um, yeah. hands was the other one that we mentioned, right? And that was weird. Maybe just be like a instead of a fifteen foot cone, be like a five foot cube of yeah. steam. Right. And again, flash boiling kind of with there. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the idea actually here while we're talking of wall of fire. Yeah. Wall of fire could be interesting because as a DM, you could say that they set the wall of fire, and while it's still kind of has its dimensions, everything above it is boiling steam whatever so oh, yeah. all of a sudden it has a much higher reach mm-hmm. because you have the magic fire and then you have the steam and the boiling water that it's creating yep. above it yeah yeah that could be cool yeah that's that's the i think one of the other things that i really like about the the concept of spells underwater is not just how you're changing the direct effect of it but some of the side effects of it again yeah. like with the lightning doing like having the aoe damage that's kind of more of a side effect uh, you know, again, the boiling, steaming water coming up off of, you know, the a wall of fire where, like, technically you're not changing the spell so much, you know, but it has this extra effect added onto it. Um, another one, when we got onto the topic of, like, a gust of wind or wind wall. Right. When you're talking about, like, air effects, we had the, uh, you mentioned, like, you know, like, white water rafting, like, with, like, it's not so much water as it is foam. Yep. So you can't, still can't breathe it if you can't breathe water, but you don't swim in it. You don't float in it. You kind of fall through it. So we kind of, when we first talked about it, like we, you know, with gust of wind or wind wall, we had mentioned like, you know, you kind of quickly fall out of the range. But then I thought about like, again, like it's a 360 environment. What if instead of doing wind wall in the 50 foot straight line horizontally for me, what if I did it vertically through somebody it's a 15 foot normally it's 15 foot high 50 foot long wall but if you do the if you kind of rotate it rotate it yeah and you make it so it's a 15 foot area of effect devious and then 50 (laughs) foot up so then all of a sudden they just fall 50 feet and if you're anywhere near the bottom of the ocean floor or the lake floor or whatever you have 50 foot that you can make them take fall damage straight to the ground and even if they don't actually hit the ground to you know to take damage 
you're dropping them 50 foot down from wherever right. you are. And with, you know, a lot of creatures having a speed based around 30 feet, that's like taking them out of the fight for a round. Yeah, and the other thing to keep in mind for underwater combat is things are resorting to their swim speed, not even their walk speed. So, like, while I think humanoids, I think it's kind of like they have a 30-foot swim speed. If they have a 30-foot walk speed, I believe, it's kind of like, you know, one for one. But some things swim some, slower than they can walk. And some swim faster than they can walk. That's too, true, so. yeah. And some things can only swim and not walk. Right. <laughs> um, but back to uh, to some of those spell effects that we came up with. Uh, one of the other hilarious ones, as we were discussing it, was cold. Yes, cold, cold can be so much fun because cold and ice underwater now becomes not only a means of dealing damage, but a means of reshaping the battlefield. Yes, um, you can use a wall of ice to create a giant iceberg that now maybe is going to just get in the way, just float there mm-hmm. out of the way. Um, we were talking about using Cone of Cold and having that flash freeze everything in that area, including if there's a target in that area, now they're encased in ice, which is now going to start floating away. Yeah, I mean, that could be, honestly, like Cone of Cold could become one of the most devastating spells in an underwater uh, combat, depending on your DM's discretion. You know, But yeah. from what, how I'm seeing it, like, again... You do Kona Cold, you're not just getting hit by the cold damage in this cold, but if you're in trapped, you know, I would say it's one of those, like, if you failed your deck save, because I think you get a deck save against it, meaning yeah. you stayed inside the area of effect and didn't dodge out of it. Um, you're encased in this block of ice, you know, this iceberg. You start floating to the surface, but now, like, can you breathe ice? Probably not. So now you're, like, you're going to continue. I would have them, like, want I would want to have them continually taking cold damage as they're encased in this ice. And start suffocating. Like, start making death saves or something. You know what I mean? Like, if someone doesn't break you out in the next few rounds, like, you're just going to asphyxiate and die. <laughs> like, and, I hope you're a sorcerer. And then we're going to hit the Kona Cold Iceberg with a wind wall and drop it down to the bottom of the ocean. And shatter it. <laughs> um, there was another one that uh, that came up that we had some good plans for. With a cold ice effect. Oh, we're talking, like, sleet storm or ice storm causing... Just an area of slush right. to become like difficult, obscured terrain. Mm-hmm. So now you know you can't really see through it. You if you try to go through it, it's 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 awkward to move through. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you'd be trying to swim through like sl- you know slushies basically. So it'd be one of those like it would still I would still have it have pretty much the same effects that it's originally intended to do. Um, but it would also make your surroundings extremely cold. Like I might not do like D six worth of cold damage, but I might say you take like a D. At least one damage, if not like a D4 worth of cold damage, every round that you're within that slushy, mm-hmm. I would slow your swim speed down a little bit because it's a more viscous... Call you know, difficult terrain. Yeah, half, absolutely. Yeah. Half speed. Definitely obscuring your vision, basically almost as if, as if you're in like a, a, a wall of fog or something, you know, a fog cloud kind of deal, which is kind of half the purpose of the sleet storm anyways is like uh, obscuring vision and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it could be a lot of fun. We also talked about the Ray of Frost, just kind of being like this little, like, long, like, icicle shooting from, like, your fingertip into, you know, at the at the person. And kind of just, it doesn't really have, like, a lot of effect other than flavor, just but just, like, leaving this long, like, icicle cylindrical trail from the, the Ray. That was weird. Like, camera fan alert. Like, okay, and then the fan kicked on. Like, good. <laughs> So, yeah, a lot of fun there. Then we also have, like, Thunder and Acid we got to talk about. Yep. Uh, acid 
can be very interesting depending on, again, going back to this realism versus the cartoony world. Um, you could go cartoony and say that acid's just acid. Yeah. Um, you could go into the realistic world side of it where you then begin arguing what side of the pH scale is it? Is it an acid? Is it a base? Is it going to be diluted in water? Is it going to be amplified an effect yeah. in water? Yeah, I would say that the... And you could decide this on every single casting of it. You could decide this on certain spells. There's a lot of DM discretion here. But if you're going to go for more like the, uh, the realistic side or you want to just screw with the spells a little bit, the things that I would play with would be the area of effect because you could say that the water is helping to spread it, spread out. it out. Or you could uh, reduce it by saying that the water is diluting it. So you can play with the, the area of effect of the spell, and you can also play with the damage, because, again, is the water amplifying its effectiveness, its lethality, or is it reducing it? Again, thinning it out or amplifying it. Because depending on the type of acid and what side of the pH scale it's on, those are different factors that could be affected. Uh, I know for force, necrotic, and radiant damage, we, we figured it didn't really have any, effect. have any effect. I don't know if we talked too much about Thunder. We talked about it a little bit. Again, I think that's one of those where I would leave it to DM discretion. But you could... Again, the two things I would play with, just like acid, would be its range and its damage. Yeah. You know, sound carries in water, but it's also at the same time kind of muffled. So, like, I would almost go for the fact that, like, it might... Its area effect might be larger because it will carry, but it doesn't do as much damage. You know, like, but that's just kind of my on the cuff, you know, kind of thought on the, you know, you could go the opposite direction where it doesn't carry as far, but it does a little bit more damage. And you could argue that the the muffled is the attempt to transition from the medium that we're, that it's in, the water, to the medium we're used to, which is the air, and trying to translate that. Right. Where if it's just hitting you directly as just, you know, a, uh, like a thunder wave through the water, yeah. then because the water molecules are packed more tightly than the air molecules are, which is the, well, a rough breakdown of the scientific reason yeah. uh, that why water carries sound further and better, um, then you may say that, yeah, it gives a stronger punch because it's going directly from that denser medium to hit you. Yeah, so again, all open to interpretation. Pretty much this entire episode is going to be DM discretion. So. Right, yeah. That's um, And then we also, we also wanted to touch on the status effects right. because those could also change um, depending on the environment. Yeah. I think that underwater, knocking somebody prone, not really going to do much of anything. Yeah, I mean, you're going to knock them on their back, but presumably they're going to just kind of float in place. Maybe they sink a little bit if they, like... I mean, if you're the big, muscly barbarian, then, you know, you're you're not that buoyant, so maybe you start to slowly sink. But, I mean, if you have a means of water breathing, it's not really doing anything to you other than you're just slowly sinking. Right, whereas in aerial, in an aerial uh, contest, being knocked prone may wind up being you have a round or a half round of falling. Yeah, and if you're high enough, that might just be that okay, you're re-entering the battle from the bottom of the three sixty scape. But if you're fighting on a lower altitude, then you might wind up hitting something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, those are important factors, you know, depending on the height of your, your aerial combat. But, yeah, being not prone can, again, knock you out of the combat. You're just re-entering, or you're going to fall and take some falling damage. Um, but there's more drastic uh, status effects, like if you're paralyzed while you're trying to fly. Yeah. Oh, uh, or you mentioned earlier in the show, entangled. Yeah. 
you know, being being restrained is as good as being paralyzed for some flying creatures. Yes, I mean, if you have a magical spell effect on you, you could argue that you're just going to kind of hover in place. I mean, again, yeah. DM's discretion, like we've said a thousand times this episode, but you could also say, like, well, you're not consciously thinking about the fact that you need to be flying because you kind of have to control your flight. You could just start still plummeting, you know, down to the earth. But entangled, if you have wings, is going to be a big factor. Being yeah, knocked if- unconscious is going to be you know, a big one for most flying things. Um Paralyzed. Petrified. Yes. Petrified is pretty much a death sentence. Petrified is pretty much a death sentence. Again, depending on your means of flight, because, you know, you know, DM discretion, if you have a fly spell on you, you could say, again, you just kind of hover there. And I believe the actual fly spell has a caveat that if it runs out, then you actually essentially get, like, a one-minute feather fall or right. something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, so. yeah, built-in parachute, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and that's also where... You know, spells like Dispel Magic can be very dangerous. Yeah, and that's going to be the other thing. Like, not just, you know, the effects of how different elements might work underwater, but for Ariel, yeah, like... And also underwater, like, if you dispel my water-breathing spell... Yep. I'm going to start drowning. If you dispel my flying spell while I'm in midair, I'm going to start falling. So, I mean, that one spell alone becomes extremely powerful. It just automatically gets rid of it. Third-level spells are lower, and water-breathing is a third-level spell, I believe. As is fly. As is fly. So, like, you just took them out of the fight and potentially killed them with that one casting. And at DM's discretion, in an aerial battle, Gust of Wind could be one that causes, you know, something that's using winged flight to have to have to take time to recover. Yeah. And I believe Windwall actually says that it deflects flying creatures. Yeah, of certain size. Like, I think, like, of smaller, smaller, like, can't even enter the area. Yeah. So, yeah, you're just going to basically keep them at bay. Like, there's going to be no pixies getting in here. <laughs> oh, that, that was another fun one for uh, environmental effects f- for aerial. That also comes into play underwater. And that's for using things that have to be anchored. Yeah. Because we mentioned Wall of Ice in the underwater and mm-hmm. Wall of Fire Windwall. Wall of Stone, both underwater and in an aerial, it suddenly becomes like stone bomb spell. Yes. Yeah. Because you pretty much, wherever you're making it, since it doesn't have anything to sit on, it's just going to come crashing down. Yeah, another really dangerous spell, I mean, uh, just to mention a couple more before we, we call it, is like flesh to stone while you're flying. I mean, even if you're underwater, that's taking them out of the fight. But if you're, you know, if you, again, like you mentioned, like petrifying something yeah. kind of deal, you know, in in flight, like you said petrified, and I thought basically, what went to my mind basically was paralyzed. But yeah, right. I mean, you turn something to stone, they're not just falling and hitting the ground and taking the ones of falling damage, they're shattering. Or if you want to do a combo of like, I'm going to turn them to stone, you quickly hit them with a shatter spell and just vaporize them on the spot. <laughs> Which would work on the ground too, if you want to combo stuff like that, but... Right. In air, it's especially lethal. Yeah. And I'm sure that there's a lot of a lot of options. We could we could sit here with the player's handbook and flip through it and go the spells like, oh, this would be interesting. Yeah, yeah how I was trying to keep it on the medium to lower yeah. end of spells, anyways. You know, stuff that you're going to see more commonly. Right. Uh, I mean, but like, yeah, there's there's a lot of options do, out there. How does guardian spirits work? Does that become a sphere if you're in the air? You know, you, it's again DM discretion. We could flip through all these spells; it would work, and we could. Do a 
We could do more episodes. It'd be really boring episodes, I think, because we'd just be talking about spells over and over. But we could do several episodes yeah. on that. If you're not sure how to run a spell or how to handle a spell in an underwater or aerial adventure, leave a comment and we'll get back to you and give you our share our yeah. thoughts on the idea. Absolutely. And also, while you're actually playing the game, if you don't have an idea of how something might work, don't be afraid to talk it out with your players. Yeah. As long as you trust them and you you're all working together for the same goal of having fun at the game you should be able to come up with a good agreement on what happens now sometimes it might not work out to the player's advantage and they have to realize that sometimes that happens you know the player the player didn't get necessarily what they wanted because the character didn't think it through we're defined by our failures as much as we are by our successes and that's what makes the story great yeah you know? i agree Remember the time that Steve tried to lightning bolt something point blank when we were underwater? Remember how that worked out for everybody? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's great stories. It's having fun, and that's what we're here for. That's what this is about, is to break up the monotony yep. of always just walking everywhere and fighting things on land. Let's have some jousting in the sky. Let's have some underwater struggles. Let's have fun with our games. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Make it crazy. So thank you for joining us for our show today. As always, if you have any comments on today's topics or any stories you'd like to share about how you used it in your game, feel free to get in touch with us. Also, if there's anything you'd like to hear us discuss, let us know. Uh, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Game Master Studio. Subscribe for exclusive access to early content and also a few other special surprises and tricks we've been putting up there. You can get in touch with us on Twitter. We are GMS Studios, uh, available on Facebook for you to like, comment, and subscribe. And we have new episodes coming out every week with more information on running your game. We're posting them on Podbean at GameMasterStudio.Podbean.com, through iTunes, and available now on YouTube as well. Speaking of YouTube, check out our Darkhounds 360 VR campaign. Watch us play through, use the tips that you see here, and occasionally miss an opportunity. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your support. We'll see you the next time that we get back into the studio.